Okay, so if you were not here last week and you didn't get one of these books, we want to get these to you. So can I get a, can I get a couple of folks to pass them out? Julie, you mind just passing them out? And you mind? Thanks, brother. All right. And uh, if we don't have enough, let me know and I'll, I can make more. For sure. Do you need to, do you want to talk before we start, Barb, or just at the end? Okay, so we do have a few seats if you need a place to be. Uh, I don't know what that means. Okay, so here's what we're doing. We're doing a mini-series, looking at the last two chapters. Hey, Aaron, how are you, brother? Last two chapters of Revelation. Um, We talked about this. We just started this last week, so if you missed last week, you haven't missed very much. And you can catch it. Um, all the, this, this class is always recorded online. Uh, and so you can go to chsroanoke.com. You can kind of get caught up on what we talked about last week. Um, but can anybody give us a quick summary? Anything. Any one thing from last week. We'll, we'll try to grab a couple of the key ideas. What's going on in Revelation 21 and 22? What's kind of the undergirding thing? Becky, do you want a book or do you want to answer me? Awesome. Okay, great. So you can go ahead and roll loud so we can hear you. Hope. Okay, what about that? Um. <laughs> Man, you thought you could get it out so easy. Um, um, we should be motivated by gratitude if we'd like to be, but often we are not, but we are motivated by hope. That's right. Hope has incredible power to draw us forward. We are more influenceable by desires for the future than by appreciation for the past. And so it's really important that we have something that anchors our lives towards the future. And what does that have to do with Revelation 21 and 22? Say, say, say it again loud, Robert. The end of the story and God's promise of the future. That's right. That's right. Robin said it's the end of the story, God's promise of the future. Revelation 21 and 22 are the last two chapters of the entire Bible. And it's really, as we peer into the, you know, peer into like the edge of the horizon of time, Revelation 21 and 22 take us as far as we can go. Cat? Absolutely, and not only those chapters. What Kat says is we talked about how the Old Testament is incredibly influential on those last chapters of Revelation, but truly in the entire, the, the entire letter. Um, Revelation is a letter. It's an epistle. Um, and it is, it is uh, absolutely soaked with Old Testament allusions. And in fact, what this book is that you have is I just printed across the top. It's really a very straightforward, very simple thing. Across the top is Revelation 21 and 22. And then below, below that line is the Old Testament passages that John was drawing from. I want to be clear. I'm not just saying, that, hey, the Old Testament just happens to talk about those same things. Sometimes the Bible has that. We call it cross-referencing when the same topic, hey, Kat, right here. So glad you're here. So glad. It's good to see you. All right. So uh, we're, not just, we're not just saying these happen to be the same passages or passages that address the same things. What I'm telling you explicitly, my claim is that John was thinking about these passages when he wrote this. And he intentionally, it's something about roughly 85% of the verses in Revelation are themselves quotations, citations, allusions, echoes of Old Testament passages. The entire book, he's intentionally going through all the Old Testament and repackaging it here to say, hey, listen, it's all happening. It's all converging. And you really... People try, but they cannot successfully understand the message of Revelation 
And how many revelations are there, by the way? One. Just one. It's revelation. <laughs> Not s. Revelation. You can't understand revelation apart from an understanding of the Old Testament. And as you go through this, you'll, you'll begin to notice some recurring passages. You'll begin to notice certainly some books that John seems to be very fond of, okay? And so my, my suggestion to you last week is that we, if you wanted to really dig into these chapters, you could. You could just jump into John's level of it. But if you really want to understand it at a deeper level, then you would do well to go back, to kind of pregame, pause here, go back, and read some of these Old Testament passages that inform it. And this book is just meant to make it easy for you to do that. As you glance through, you should see some of the commonalities here. Um, uh, and you might just have to go back, and I'm going to reread some of those things. Okay, great. One or two other kind of key ideas from last week. Bob? Two rules. Two rules. Okay, what are the two rules? We just, it's, not it's not literal. And it is true. And, and it is what? True, yeah, although I would say, this, I would say the number one, that, that's kind of, it's not literal, but true is all kind of one, right? So it's, it's, it's metaphor, the, the nature of apocalyptic literature. And what does apocalypse mean? It doesn't mean like, the, it feels like it means the destruction of everything, but it doesn't. It means revelation. revelation, the revealing, the uncovering, okay? So the nature of apocalyptic literature is that it's uncovering, it's showing but it's uncovering and showing in a really weird way. Right? It's metaphor. And then the second rule is what we just, really where we started with, is it's the Old Testament is the answer key to Revelation. If you want to know what the images mean here, you got to go back and see, well, what, 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 what's he drawing from? And if you understand what Isaiah meant, what Jeremiah meant, what Ezekiel meant, what Genesis meant, then that's going to be the key to making sure you know what the heck John meant. Okay, very good. All right, uh, any other key things just worth real quick review? Review helps us learn. Um, what's the genre of the book? Apocalypse. There's three. Apocalyptic, right? Prophetic. Prophetic and epistle, right? So prophetic and apocalyptic kind of go together. It's predicting the future, speaking for God, and it's a revealing of things. But an epistle matters because it's, it's about something. It's about an occasion. It's written to a group of people. And the tendency we have to locate the entire message of Revelation in the distant future is going to lead us astray because it was really written to a group of people at a particular moment in time. What it means to them, it has impact for what it means to us, right? All, Paul says in Romans that everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. That's true of Revelation. But you can't really get to the meaning right now if you just don't give a rip or aren't even aware there was a meaning when it was written. So we want to understand that it's, it's a letter. It's written to a group of people facing certain circumstances. Okay, that feels pretty good to me. Anything we're missing? Anything that you're like, yeah, but you said this and I think that mattered. Or you discovered this and that mattered. Okay, then we're going to do it. So here's the deal. Let's just take a look at this first section. I don't think we're going to get past the first spread here today. But we're going to take it as, as it comes. And if we make it, then, then that's fine. Now, if you just got a book today, some of your passages are in bold, and that does not mean they're more important. It means they occurred to me after I printed this first, okay? So this is not some inspired, this bottom half is mine, right? And I, like, like oh, I, I think that too, and I've, you know, so I kind of screwed it up, and I printed it, and then I thought about it some more, and I, print, and I made a new version. So if, you, if your version doesn't have anything bold, then what you're missing is, and you might want to jot it down, Isaiah 61.10 and Isaiah 62.5. I'm pretty sure these were going on in John's mind when he wrote this, but I failed to include them in the first edition, okay? So, um, and we'll, we'll cover that as we go through, and I can, I can print more. Are there any more books? Will they all get out? So who still needs them? How many more? To, you know, a whole bunch more. Shoot. Okay, so 
I will make more. Here's what we'll do. And if you're listening online and you're not ever going to be here, I will print a bunch of these and have them at the office, and then we'll have them here each week as well. So sorry that I didn't make enough. Okay, so we're going to kick it off. Revelation 21. We're just going to read these first six verses, uh, and then we'll talk about what, what does it mean? What's John drawing from? And why does this give us hope, Becky? Why is this really, really good news? So here it is. Revelation 21, starting at verse 1. John says, Then I saw... A new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God as a bride prepared beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. And that makes me realize there's another passage I forgot. So there'll be a third edition coming up. (laughs) He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. Okay. My, my argument to you guys is that if this is going to really provide the hope and the anchor for our lives... We need to know what it is that he's saying. So let's talk about this. I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. Now you can cheat here. You have the book in front of you. When John uses language of new heaven to new earth, where is he getting that from? It is Isaiah. Isaiah is going to be very popular this morning. Okay, He's going to show up over and over. What chapters? 65 and 66, okay? These are the last two chapters of Isaiah, and it's the only place in the Old Testament that ever uses the phrase new heavens and new earth. It shows up in Isaiah 65, 66 is the very end, um, and that's kind of significant, you guys. What do you know? Give me a little bit about Isaiah. What, do you, what, what is his role? When, do, when, does he, when does he write? What's significant about his stuff? You know anything at all? Yeah, Shane, tell us about Isaiah. Isn't he, like, talking about, like, incoming destructions, like, you all got to, like, wake up? He is, yes, absolutely. So he's, he's what we call one of the major prophets, of which there are five books for people, okay? Um, they're not major because they're more important. They're major because they wrote longer stuff, okay? Um, Jeremiah gets two books. He's, there's only, so it's, well, who are, the, who are the four major prophets? Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Daniel. Although Daniel's kind of a weirdo, but, but Daniel. And then Jeremiah gets two books. What's his, what's his second book? Lamentations, okay? Now, you said, you said Shane, that he's like, he's, it's, a, it's a warning. There's something stern. What's, what's he warning of? Babylon. Babylon. Lily? Babylonian exile. That's it, okay? So there's this huge event that is going to happen in 586 B.C., and Babylon, led by Nebuchadnezzar, is going to roll into town and just decimate Judah. Israel has already... So the, the nation split in half. They had a civil war, but it succeeded in splitting... 
And the northern tribes are called Israel. The southern tribes are called Judah. Assyria got wiped out around 722 B.C. Just destroy, uh, Israel got wiped out by Assyria in 722 B.C. And now about 140, that is, 140 years later, um, Babylon is gunning for Judah. Okay? All of the prophets, almost without fail, are writing about this event. This is the massive, massive event. And Isaiah is writing, and he's saying, you guys, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. If you don't knock it off, if you don't begin to live righteous lives, if you don't pursue justice, if you don't love the things that God loves, an enemy's gonna sweep into town, he's gonna destroy us. That's basically the message of all of them. Um, and, and in fact, we date all the prophets, all of the five majors and the 12 minors, they all get dated in reference to one event. Do you know what the event is? The exile. That's it, right? And the destruction of the temple as they come in. And so the prophets are either pre-exilic, exilic, or post-exilic. It's like you say, everything's like before 9-11, after 9-11, or it happened on September 11th. That's kind of the way this thing works. And so Isaiah is, he's writing pre-exile. He's saying, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. And it is just absolutely filled with warning language. But the prophets not only write saying there's a judgment coming, but they almost always have a secondary message as well. Do you know what that is? Go loud. Isaiah in particular writes probably most about the Messiah. Yes, he writes enormous. Okay, so and that's that's going to permeate everything, right? It's going to be all over the place, Jason. He's just Messiah stuff. But there's there's this warning of the judgment is coming and something else, and it's relevant to the Messiah coming. Cat. Kingdom of heaven. Uh, Kingdom of heaven. Yeah, but there's something there's something else that pairs well with the destruction of everything. Uh, There's going to be a restoration. Okay, the judgment is going to fall, but it won't be the end of the story. There's going to be something else, okay? And this, it's, it's constantly like, hey, listen, judgment's coming. Knock it off, knock it off. Judgment's going to come. But when it's all over, it's not all over. He will restore you. He will draw you back to himself. And some of the prophets have that more as a focus. And Isaiah has that pr- pretty clearly. There's all of this language of warning and threat. But his book, from beginning to end, is full of, yet the land that has seen great darkness will see a great light, right? And we, we, we go to Isaiah. Isaiah's filled with messianic content. In the first half, it breaks down very neatly. The first 39 chapters and the last 27 chapters, which is weird because the Old Testament has 39 and the New Testament has 27. It's a strange correspondence. But he, his, his book, Isaiah's book, is this grand tapestry of God's work in the world. And it ends, it culminates, it climaxes with this vision of the new heavens and the new earth. And if you go back and you just read Isaiah 65 and 66, when he puts the pen down, he has painted a picture of this is where this whole thing is going. And John grabs it and he says, yes, that. The stuff that Isaiah talked about, the new heavens and the new earth, I saw it. I saw this. God gave me a vision. And everything that Isaiah talked about is going to happen. Okay? Now, there's one thing. We've talked about it in this room a fair bit. There's one thing about... John's vision that he's getting from Isaiah that is almost universally misunderstood and ignored and unknown in the church. What is the most startling thing about the new heavens and the new earth as seen by Isaiah and is, and is revealed by John? It's right here, Bill. It's right here. Most of you probably grew up all your lives and you heard that what happens is that we die and we go to heaven and we live happily ever after. That's not the way the story ends. Do you know? And this is not a heresy. This is not some fringe, weird belief. This is Orthodox Christianity. It's why we say in the creeds every week, we believe in the resurrection of the dead. 
the kingdom and the world to come, that this is all coming here. What John sees, look at what he sees. I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. What Isaiah sees, and you go back and you'll see this permeates the Old Testament. We tend to be unaware of it, is that it's coming here, right here. This world is going to be renewed. Now, for who who would say that's a new teaching? It's a new teaching, right? For, For lots of us, like I always thought it was just that we go someplace else. So do we go someplace else? Yes. For a little while, that's exactly right, right? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, right? That's true. Jesus, Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise, someplace else. Paul says, I want to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. There is that, but it's, a, it's, it's here and there. It's, it's over and done. And then we're all coming back here. And what John is seeing is this. Everything else that follows, I want you to just consider this. Everything that we're about to see unfolding in these last chapters, it's going to happen here, right here. Don? Uh, so I really appreciate um, the concept of, of the new heaven and the new earth and that being here. And I'm so glad there's not going to be any sea anymore because that gives us a lot more room for everybody. <laughs> but where does that come from? Where, where, does, where does that vision come from in the Old Testament? will not be any more And that is the piece that I missed. So well done. Yes. Okay. So um, when I was reading, I'm like, dang it, I didn't put anything about that in here. So let's, we'll, we'll trace that back. So first of all, if you want to understand that what, the way that John uses sea, the sea, the ocean, in, uh, in Revelation 21, you probably want to go back to Revelation 13 first. And this might give you, this might be, we'll kind of trace it backwards. So go to, if you have, if you guys have your Bibles or your phones, go to Revelation 13. And take a look at this. Revelation 13, 1. You guys there? John writes, John is having this vision. Um, uh, or should I even begin this? this let's, go, let's just go, ah, well, it's so hard to start in the middle of the stream. We'll start at Revelation 13, that's fine. So here's what it says. This is the dragon. The dragon is the serpent. The dragon is Satan. He is there at the moment of the birth of this child. Revelation 12, the child, this child is born, this singular son who's gonna rule the nations with an iron scepter. He's being born in Revelation 12 and there's a, there's a serpent, a dragon there to greet him. Now we're gonna little, learn a little bit more about the dragon. In Revelation 13, 1, the dragon stood on the shore of the, shore of the sea and I saw a beast coming out of the sea he had ten horns and seven heads and with ten crowns on his horns. And each, one, each head had a blasphemous name. And the beast that I saw resembled a leopard, but it had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. And the dragon gave the beast his power and throne and great authority. Okay? Now let me just pause right there. What is that? What Old Testament passage is, is he drawing from? Daniel. Daniel, what chapter? Seven. That's all Daniel 7, right? All of that. So there's idea that there's this beast and there's a bunch of heads and a bunch of crowns and it looks like animals, but they're devouring and the whole thing is about authority. That's all Daniel 7. I'm actually, I'm gonna, so I might pause right there, but we're gonna, we're gonna preach on Daniel 7 next Sunday because it is the central passage, one of the central passages in the Old Testament for this notion of the kingdom of Christ and the kingship of Christ. But all of that language is all about this beast, Right? And so John depicts the sea as the source 
of all this wickedness and evil and chaos. And that theme is actually throughout the Old Testament. So you're seeing it chiefly where he's really drawing from Daniel 7. But the sea is the place of the churning cauldron of chaos and, and you cannot control this thing. And when the waves are tossing you, then you're tossed. So, um, the Bible often uses leviathans and terrible, deadly things that are in the ocean because it's just terrifying and scary. And so when John says in 21, there's no longer any sea, it's this source, this bed, this place from which the evil comes, we're not going to have to deal with that anymore. There will be an ocean, there will be lakes, there will be rivers, there will be water, but there won't be evil and churning and chaos and death and and something that just is absolutely going to overwhelm and destroy. So that's how he's, that's where that image, you trace it back through chapter 13, back to Daniel 7. And off the top of my head, I can't think of other references where the Bible uses sea like that, but it does, and I'll, it'll be in version 3. Okay, so Robin, and then Kelly. Yeah, I have a question. Um, with that being wrong, and the turmoil and the chaos, and Does that mean the beast is what? Then, you know, they say he's been chained and thrown into the lake of fire. Yes. Is that already occurred before? Yes. Okay, so Robin's question is, um, at the, at the, at, well, so in, in chapter 21, is the beast already destroyed? And it seems to me that the destruction of the beast is kind of a iterative thing. So in Dan, we'll see this a little bit. And if you go back and you read Daniel 7, this would be a... Read it in advance of next Sunday's sermon, okay? It's, it's, it's good stuff. But in Daniel 7, the beast is unequivocally destroyed. This river of fire, they kill the beast, throw him into the river, and his body's burned up. In Revelation 20, the beast is thrown, John, John kind of transforms the river of fire into a lake of fire, and the beast is cast into that. Um, and there is controversy over this. Is the, is the lake a, uh, an agent of torture, or is it an agent of destruction? And John unequivocally uses torture language, torment, says the beast is tormented day and night. But it's a metaphor. It's, remember, it's all metaphor and it's all using Old Testament language. And so what's, I think that what he's saying in Revelation 20 is that this lake, which is like the river of Daniel, the river in Daniel is absolutely a thing of destruction. Here the lake is a thing of destruction. Death is destroyed. It's not going to be tormented. Hades is destroyed. You can't torment Hades. That this image is of destruction. So your question is, when does that happen? When is this destruction? It's ongoing. It's happening both. In, da- in, da- in Daniel 7, it begins as, as Christ becomes king, but it's not ultimately completed until he returns. So we are in this, we're in this weird moment between the beginning of the defeat of Satan, his head was crushed when Jesus went to the cross. But he's not yet been cast into this lake of fire. So it's a, it's a, the Bible seems to d- depict it at two major events, at, his, at Jesus' first coming and Jesus' second coming. By the conclusion of the second coming, it's done, baby, done. And we live in this intervening, intervening period between the beginning and the end of the destruction of all evil. Does that, does that make sense? So it's multiple times. But you can see it in Daniel 7. You can see it in Revelation 20 right before we get to here. Okay. And then Kelly. Eh. Move on. Okay. So, so check it out. So we have a new heaven and a new earth all being drawn. If you want to understand it really, you go back and you look at Isaiah 65 and 66 and all the language of that. Lots of stuff in there that you can draw from. But he has this thing about um, the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. 
What do you think that means, that we have a new heaven? Do you think we get a new ball? Do you think, you, you think we're going to like destroy this sphere of Terra that is the third planet from the sun? Or do you think it's going to be renewed? Do you have a sense of that? What you, how, I mean, it's not all that clear in the text, but how do you, any ways that you think about or imagine that? Brand new or renewed? What do you think? Renewed. 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 Well, he created yeah so yeah and so that's interesting. so and on the one hand we would say that God created ex nihilo he created out of nothing but he also forms out of the tohu and bohu in Genesis 1 right everything was formless and void and then he shapes it into things I think that our best guide to this um, would be if you wanted we're not going to do this all today but if you read second Peter um, I think that you would come to the understanding that it's a renewal He's not just going to eviscerate this planet. He's going to renew it. And it's just like what he did to you. Because if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Right? And yet, you have the same physical sense that you had. Right? You have been renewed. But genuinely, truly, it's really true. It's accurate that if you are in Christ, you're you're a new creation. It's true if you are in Christ that the old has gone and the new has come. And I think it's just exactly as true that in the world to come, it's still going to be this planet, but it's going to be, he's going to transform it and it's going to be dramatically improved. All of the wickedness, all of the badness is going to be done away with. And that's really the, the, what, he, what, he's, what he wants to get. And the, the next two chapters are going to be fleshing out. In what way is it renewed? How does it change? What's different about it? Okay. Was there a hand? Did I miss something? Yeah. Lily? Um, I was just thinking about all of the Bible Project videos that kind of flesh out the theology surrounding the New Heavens. Yeah. And so I was just wanting to mention that as a resource. And yeah. what you've been saying just reminds me of, you know, just at the fall, I feel that some of those videos illustrate so well the severing of that unity with God. And I think that's what a lot of the reunification is going to look like, is that reunification of all things in heaven. Right, absolutely. That, that, that's what he's doing. So what Lily's saying is that all, first of all, you go to BibleProject.com uh, or just go to YouTube and Bible, search for Bible Project. They've got some great resources. Just go to Bible Project, New Heavens, New Earth, and they do a great job of making this stuff really clean, really clean and vivid and beautiful and is great. And yes, what God is doing, and, and that's like the next lines in this, right? He's like, I see the Holy City coming up, and then the first image, what's the primary image that you see here? Of this new heavens and new earth. What's the, what's, what's the, what's the metaphor? A bride, right? Now, a couple things here. First of all, he's desperately, desperately, desperately trying to say, don't take me literally. Okay? The city is coming down and it's wearing a dress. Okay? It doesn't make any sense. So don't, don't push it. All right? Don't push it. But what he's communicating here, see the city, it's, it's like a bride. Beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. So all of the language, what's coming is intimacy and beauty and union and connection. That's, that's the driving thing he wants you to get. Not that he got a whole lot of satin wrapped it around Manhattan, okay? Kelly? Just like you said earlier, one of the reasons we can predict he's making a renewal of Earth is because that's what he did in us. 
us. Just like Lily said, we can expect that the new heavens and the new earth will be a unification again with him. And that's what he did with us too, because there would be no yes. new creation in me if it were not for my union with Christ. That's exactly right. I am united with Christ and one with him, that I am made new, and the same will be for heaven and earth. Absolutely. And so what Kelly's saying is that, that what, what he does with us, what we already know that he made me new, and he, and he united me to himself, that's what he's going to do. He's going to make the world new. He's going to unite the world to himself. Okay? Now, here's one risk that you could, we could very, very, we're so close to falling into one mistake. And that is concluding that when he comes back, it will be like a marriage. You could even conclude that our relationship to, that, that, that his relationship to us is like marriage. And do you know why that's not true? feels like heresy. I know we're constantly on the edge of heresy, but it's not a heresy. The reason it's not true is you have it exactly backward. Your relationship with God is not like marriage. Your marriage is like a relationship with God. He is the first. We are the second. Okay. I've showed a video in here. We're going to show it again that kind of illustrates this idea that we often think of metaphor in the wrong direction. Okay. Marriage isn't like our relationship with, or our relationship with him is not like marriage. It's quite the opposite. What we are with him, that is first. Marriage is merely a picture of that. So here's a real quick two-minute video. Silas, if you don't mind, pull that piece of paper off and hit play. And uh, this is a bunch of poetry from Gerard Manley Hopkins, right? So good. So hit it, buddy. Let's go back to fire. Why do we have it? For warmth, to cook, but also fire is used time and time again to tell us something about God. He is dangerous. He purifies. He enlightens. So you mean the world gives us like a metaphor? Yes, except with one very important difference. God isn't like fire. Fire is like God. There is something in fire that tells us about God. There is something like these trees that tell us about God. In fact, when we look at everything in the world, we can not only see into it, we can see along it. Listen to this. I do not know that I have ever seen anything more beautiful than the bluebell I have been looking at. I know the beauty of our Lord by it. The world then is word, expression, news of God. Therefore its end, its purpose, its purport, its meaning is God and its life or work to name and praise him. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. The creation does praise him, does reflect honor on him, is of service to him. The sun and the stars shining glorify God. They stand where he placed them. They move where he bid them. The heavens declare the glory of God. The birds sing to him. The thunder speaks of his terror. The lion is like his strength. The sea is like his greatness. The honey like his sweetness. They are something like him. They make him known. They tell of him. For Christ plays in 10,000 places, lovely in limbs and lovely in eyes not his, to the Father through the features of men's faces. Right? I love that so much. 
right? There's so much about that that it just makes my heart worship. But the thing I just want you to grasp here is that fire is not, God is not like fire. Fire is like God. Marriage is not like this. Or God is not like marriage. Marriage is like him, right? And what we're, what we're looking for, what we're, what we're peering into is, is John is using all these images to, to help us to grasp that everything he's done, everything he's made reflects him, points to him, and will yet do so more thoroughly, more beautifully, more joyfully, basically when he gets rid of the sea, right? When the chaos is ended, when the enmity is brought to a close, when we're finally united to him, as was always the plan, and everything will be delightful. That's the hope, is that one day, finally, someday, we will get him, not in 10,000 removes, as we presently do, but we'll have him directly. We will drink from fountains of joy directly in himself. And that is really where John, that's the picture that John is trying to paint for us, which is why I think it's worth doing the work to read, the, read Isaiah, among other things, and to really grab our heads around what it is that awaits us, the infinite and increasing joy that will be ours. Okay, so that's the first page. You ready? You want to keep going? Okay, go ahead, Joel. Is it true that we can also avoid getting confused and often in the wrong direction by simply looking at the beginning of the Bible, the first couple of chapters of Genesis, because that's what God's trying to do, right? Yeah. His original plan, his original intention, that relationship that we had with him. <coughs> he gave Eve to Adam to be married, and he had, they had a relationship with God that's the end, end goal. If chapter 3 hadn't happened, the entire rest of the story would have been very different, right? But because it did, he's trying to renew us and renew the world, not make something different. He made it right in the first place. The flood was a renewal of sorts. Not a it was a renewal. He didn't wipe everything out and start over again. He's trying to get back to that. Yeah. If we keep that in mind, we don't get confused. There's going to be something new in the relationship to be any different. Okay, great. So let me just to briefly recap. Joel is saying, wouldn't it be helpful to us to go back to the first few chapters of Genesis, really chapters one to three, um, because there we see God's intention, there we see God's purpose. And wouldn't it be useful to go see what he originally was doing before sin ruined the world, and that'll help us make sense of everything else. And to that I would say yes, absolutely. Um, with one very strong affirmation and then one caveat that I would throw into here, okay? So first, the strong affirmation is that if you really want to get, we're, we're just doing the last two chapters of Revelation. If you, wanted to, if you wanted to throw into the third, go 20, 21, 22, then you would find, and, and we'll see this even in the last two chapters, a ridiculous correspondence to the first three chapters of Genesis. Chapters one, two, three, and chapters last, second to last, and third to last, okay, have all kinds of really obvious and compelling. Just read the two chapters. Read, read all six chapters. Read one, two, three, and the last three. And you'll see like these things correspond. So there is a tree that we're barred from in the garden. And there is a tree that we're invited to at the very end, right? There's this, there's this great correspondence. So what was lost in the fall from Genesis shows up. And we will see that. In fact, as Kelly and I were discussing, like, what do I want to teach? And I just, I, we ended up here. I, I was really close to doing a series called The Beginning and the End, where I was just going to do exactly that. The three chapters of Genesis, the last three chapters... And then I just feel like, let's just focus on the end, and then we'll kind of reach back into the beginning when it's useful. So yes, 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 very much so. This, these, the opening chapters of Genesis informs, and John is drawing from that. It's full of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. You'll see that as we go through this. But 
There's a big mistake that commonly we assume. So here's the question. When the world was made in Genesis 1, right, what we have there in the opening chapters of the book, was the world perfect? <coughs> yes, yes, yes. Yes. It's good. He said it was good. Okay, so we got a bunch of early yeses, then we got a little bit of equivocation. It was good. There was no sin. Was it perfect? Rachel? Okay, the server didn't show up, so that seems like that's the iffy, right? Okay. It was good. Okay, and I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm, I'm down with the good. He said it was good. I'm not going to contradict him on that. It was good, but it wasn't perfect. And in particular, Jason? If it was perfect, why was man brought to work in it? Okay, good. So go with that. But um, Okay, that, that could go, that could, that's a fork. That could go either way. So why was he brought to work in it, Jason? That's right. That's exactly right. So it, it was good. It was flawless. There was no sin, but it was immature. It was incomplete, right? And so the, the command was given before the fall, subdue the earth, okay? Have, rule over it. What that means is go dig up the copper and make stuff out of it. It means go smash some flowers and make some paint and then make something pretty. It means like Carve the wood and make a flute. It means invent metallurgy and figure stuff out. It means build a city, okay? So Genesis, begin, the, the world begins in a garden in Genesis, but it ends in a city. We're not, this is really important, we're not going back to Eden. This is not the plan. We're not trying to go back to some primeval world that was pre-civilization, pre-technology, Edenic. What we're, what we're trying to do, what we will do, what will happen, what our great hope is, is that what God meant all along is that we would dig stuff out of the ground, we would learn to saute onions, we would, it wouldn't just be eating like raw grass, right? We're gonna create music and beauty and art and technology. We'd build spaceships and we would build submarines and we would see the stuff that he put at the bottom of the ocean that nobody saw, for thousands of years, but there's all this weird stuff down there and he just couldn't wait till we figured out how to find it, right? All of that, we're, dri- we're driving to that. So yes, we are going back to, the, to all of the goodness of Eden, but we're, we're actually moving forward to what he always meant all along. Your work matters. We were supposed to write plays. We were supposed to do stuff and, we're doing, and, we, and we are and we will. Okay, so Joel and then Pat. Yeah, perfect. And all of that is not so that we can show how arrogant and smart we are. We've discovered all we say we've discovered or we've created all of this stuff, and we're proud of ourselves for that. In reality, all of that stuff is there so God can go, oh, look, they found it. That's right. That's exactly right. Right? Everything we're doing, all inventions, all technology are imitations. We're all ripping stuff off, right? Like, we, we, we think we invented solar panels. Trees are solar panels, okay? Like, like, like. The fact it's all been it's all been pre-gamed, but we're discovering it and we're exploiting the laws that he created, and that was what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to write poetry, right? And there was a whole bunch of beautiful things that didn't exist in the garden, but that do exist now. And can you imagine what it's like when people have written not their second or third musical, but their fifty thousandth musical? Can you? I'm serious about this. Like, think about how good the art is going to be in a billion years think about this what we are moving towards is not we're not going to be a bunch of you know 
we're not, gonna go, we're not going back to the Stone Age, you guys. There's going to be an enormous movement towards beauty and art and delight and joy and discovery and technology. That's, that's where we're heading. Okay, Pat, and then we're going to keep going. Oh, gosh, we're almost out of time. In the beginning, apparently the evil one was inexistent. Yeah. Because he tempted uh, Adam and Eve. In the end, the evil one will be totally obliterated. Yeah. And so that's kind of why it wasn't perfect in the beginning. Right, yes. Because the evil one was there. Yes. And so it was, it was in the very beginning, it was good. We don't have, we have very little data about exactly where this dragon comes from. The best guess is Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 are going to give you insights into that. We won't do that now because we don't have time. But certainly in the, the end game, all rebellion will be eviscerated. And that, that is absolutely right. So it's not Satan that made it imperfect. It's, it's immaturity made it imperfect. Satan made it corrupt. Right? So it was good and then it was corrupted. And it's going to be not only redeemed, but perfected. So all of these concepts are all at play. And there won't be, in the world to come, there will be no more evil. Not, any, not only not any evil, but look, look at the second page. There won't be any of the, concept, the, the, the consequences of it. Verse 4, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Look, look at where he's getting that from. This is all, it's all, you look down here, it's Isaiah, 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 Isaiah. It's worth reading Isaiah. Isaiah 25, 8. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. Isaiah 35. The ransomed of the Lord will return. They will enter Zion with singing. And everlasting joy will crown their heads. I love this. Listen to the way. I like the way Isaiah said it. I wish John kept it the same. Gladness and joy will overtake them. Sorrow and sighing will flee away. John's not making this up. This is exactly what Isaiah said. And that exact same language shows up in Isaiah 51. The ransom of the Lord will return. They'll enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. Isaiah 65 in the New Heavens passage. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. There'll be no more sadness because, verse 5, back in Revelation, I am making everything new. This is what we're driving toward, a world where all, as, as uh, one of the hobbits said, all of the sad things come untrue. And that is what we're looking for. And this is exactly what you get out of Isaiah. By the way, I would just make a quick, quick tip. Isaiah is a long book. It'll take you a while to read through it, but I think it might be worth it. It's also really worth doing it on an audio Bible. I had to drive up to Northern Virginia and back on Friday, and so I listened to Isaiah in the car, um, and I, I didn't finish it. I made it through like the first 27 chapters because it is hard to listen for two hours, you know. You got to kind of pause every now and then. But um, I really would suggest pick up, if you don't have it, you can get an audio Bible for free. Just get, it's like a Holy Bible app. It's like the most popular Bible app that you can fit on, on an app store. And they'll download the audio. And then when you're raking the leaves this fall, just listen to Isaiah. Just let it roll through. And just let the, sometimes you hear things better than you even read them. So I think if you, if you go through it, this Isaiah stuff, um, it'll really help you understand what it is that he's doing. Okay, what are the images here? Anything strikes you from Isaiah, whether it's intellectually or emotionally, does anything grab you in any of the, this whole thing is all Isaiah language. 
Anything that hits you? John, were you raising your hand? No. Robin? Absolutely. The, the, the basis of all of it is that who he is, right? His promises are sure because he swears according to himself and is super dependable. Yeah, Sarah Lynn? The, it, you didn't have this written in the book, but Isaiah 11, where it talks about just like kids playing with snakes and just the, the way that we can trust <coughs> in the, the new order and um, like wolves hanging yes. and just that, I don't know. Yeah, that's a, 11, through, through, uh, that's a, that's a, that's a great, that's a great addition. Like I said, this is, there's probably gonna be multiple versions of this book before we're done. Although I don't know if he's using any, it'd be interesting. I don't know if he lifts any language out of Isaiah 11, but that is precisely what he's describing. That the older order of things is gone and that the lamb will lie down with the lion, the kids playing with a viper. I'm not down with that, but that's cool. Whatever. Um, <laughs> and, and it's all going to be well, very well. Shoot, we're out of time. Okay. Um, I'm not going to stop, though. Real quick. Go to Isaiah 55. I just want you to see this one, and then, we'll, then I'll shut up. Okay? Isaiah 55, verse 1. This is one of my favorite passages in Isaiah, and I love that John picks it up a couple times in Revelation. But right here, just listen to this. Just hear the promise. This is the offer of the gospel that Isaiah sees. And then we'll stop. Isaiah 55, 1. Come. Come. Three times, watch for the word come. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. That's weird. You have no money, come and buy. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend your money on what is not bread? And your labor on what does not satisfy. Listen, listen to me. And eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest affair. Give ear, come to me. Hear me that your soul may live. I'll make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. That's the gospel. Listen, he's like, he's, he's imploring with us. Just why do you chase so many things? Why do you drink so much sand? Listen, listen to me. Eat what is good, and your soul will delight in the richest affair. And John picks that up, and he says here, I'm the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. And to him who is thirsty, I will give drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. And he's going he's gonna to do that again later on. But this is the invitation. Come, come, come. And I will give you, I will meet all your deepest needs. It's John 7. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. John wrote that as well, influenced by the same thing. So this is what we're invited to. We've got to stop talking. So, but, but keep reading this, we'll, and we'll, we'll pick up not this next week. We're going to have a parents' meeting in here next week. Two weeks out, we'll continue the study here.